Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, February 23rd. We begin with our monthly conversation with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. We take the opportunity to ask the chief about the fatal police-involved shooting in Forest Lawn over the weekend and the tactics the police service use when it comes to de-escalation. Are you satisfied with your current job? If your answer is no and you're thinking of leaving your job, maybe you should think again. We speak with Darcy Eichenberg, career coach and author of the book, How to Save Your Career Without Leaving Your Job. Today is Pink Shirt Day. We learn about the importance of the day, just how prevalent bullying is online, and what parents can do to help safeguard their kids. And finally, we wrap up our series on Black History Month. Order of Canada recipient and black history expert Robert Small brings us the incredible stories of two black Albertans who made an impact not only in our province, but across Canada. We have the chance and the opportunity to check in and chat with Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld and talk about the issues that are facing the city. Chief Newfeld, back with us this morning. Good morning to you, Chief. Thanks for being with us. Hey, good morning, Sue. Glad to be here. Unfortunately, uh, we have to start off with uh, one the story that's obviously making the rounds. We're, you're hearing it in our newscast this morning. So let's talk about what happened with the fatal shooting by a police officer in Forest Lawn over the weekend. Some of the details around it, I mean, you see different stories and different comments from, you know, family members, for example, on social media. But do you want to sort of bring us the facts of that story and exactly what happened? Sure. You know, I came out yesterday, uh, Sue, when in situations like this, uh, we obviously uh, step back and let ACERT handle the uh, investigation. And, you know, there shouldn't be a lot of uh, information going out. But the reality of it is these are very emotional times. And and so we understand that, uh, you know, that there's going to be a thirst for more information. In this case, there was a lot of misinformation I found circulating in relation to this. And I thought it was really important to sort of bring that bring that back. Uh, you know, back to more fact, more factual approach. Uh, but the reality of this is, it's a, it's a very unfortunate situation. Uh, we received uh, Calgary 911 received three calls from folks who were concerned about an incident in the community. Obviously, that involved a man who was in possession of a knife and a stick. And uh, officers responded, you know, to an assault complaint. And you know, in the end, they certainly did their very best to try to de-escalate the situation and and try to bring a a uh, a peaceful resolution uh, to that situation, which which ordinarily happens, and sadly, you know, that's the challenge, as it didn't in this case. But, you know, after, in the days that followed, there was a lot of very, very good and very important information uh, that came out about uh, the gentleman's background and, you know, things that may have contributed to uh, the situation. But I guess, you know, one thing that I think is really important that the public remember is that the officers had the benefit of none of it. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it is very important information, but as I say, when the officers uh, respond they had a you know a very limited amount of information, and they were certainly confronted there with a man uh, in possession of a knife. Chief, we've heard you know about the intense training that CPS officers go through, including you know when it comes to tactics for de-escalation. So if you can walk us through you know how important something like this is within the training of an officer, and, and whether or not you know it's being looked at, if, if more has to be done, or is is, is it going to remain status quo? You know what. Uh, Andrew, we end up doing operational reviews after every incident like this, and really I can tell you, uh, I mean, this has been a topical issue over the past number of years, as you know, so our training is, is always sort of evolving, but we actually, for our um, recruit officers that come in there, we actually bring in um, actors uh, to be able to um, sort of act out scenarios, uh, you know, people experiencing different levels of mental illness and this type of thing. Um, 
I think the de-escalation piece is, is so critical. And so we have a heavy focus on that. But I can tell you when you are, you're in a public area, uh, a busy public area at a busy time of day like this one was, and then you're dealing with an individual, you know, who's, who's in possession of a knife, it's a major barrier to, you know, trying to establish any sort of communication and any sort of rapport. Um, and, and that obviously was the intention of the officers, but that's very difficult to do when there's, when there's danger. And at, and at that particular point, you don't necessarily know what the individual's intention is. Chief, we've talked and heard a lot about that term defunding the police and it it gets a bad rap because it it just sounds bad overall. But, uh, you know, one of the issues was perhaps to to use some of the money to help bring, you know, the the people to the front lines to help officers with situations like that. Do you think there is a need for that? And, And do you think there's a potential for that here in our city? Well, you know, I don't like to use the word uh, defund, Sue, because mm-hmm. I think that, that whole thing started from an, an area of let's, let's, uh, let's punish the police for right. what happened in the U.S., and I, and I don't think that's a helpful discussion at all. Uh, you know, as you know, in Calgary here, we actually stepped up and we actually uh, committed money from our budget to fund some of these uh, types of initiatives where there was perhaps gaps in the crisis response system. And so, I mean, there, there may well be some. Certainly, we're on that road. We have all of the... Um, the resources and all of the um, programs where we have mental health practitioners working with police officers and this type of thing, you know, there may well be gaps. I think as we go forward with respect to some of the communities, there are newcomer communities and, and whether some of those um, uh, services are culturally appropriate, um, whether they're available for people, you know, given language barriers and, and, and again, whether they're culturally appropriate, those are things I think we'll hear about in the coming days and weeks. And I think those are things that, that, that the broader system can respond to. But the notion that, you know, it's, this is just an issue for the police, I think is a fiction. This is an issue for all of us. It's, it's police, it's mental health, it's social services, it's, uh, it's the uh, nonprofits, and it's the community too. I think we've got to work together to make sure that people aren't you know, the police shouldn't be responding to a crisis situation out on 17th Avenue Southeast and, you know, 41 Street. Uh, hopefully, uh, appropriate resources can be brought to bear long before it gets to that. And I think that's the success. Chief, let's switch gears. I want, I want to ask you about a trend that I read about on the weekend in Edmonton, and that is, a, I believe there were 12, a total of 12 Ford F-150 pickup trucks stolen and you know, you, you dig in and you read more in the article, and this is due to the fact that there's, you know, shortage of chips in a lot of the vehicles, so p- people can't get their hands on the Ford F-150, so I, apparently the bad guys are going after them. Have you seen a, a trend in a particular type of vehicle uh, due to supply chain issues in our city? Do you know, I haven't seen that, and it's interesting because I did read the article, uh, Andrew, that you refer to, and so I, our people are looking into that, but we haven't noticed that specifically. So it would be interesting because, generally speaking, what happens in one city or what's going on trend-wise usually is, is going on in the other or started in the other. So we're looking to see if that's the case, but nothing, nothing right now, no. Chief, I want to circle back just to uh, one last question about what happened on the weekend. What happens to officers who are involved in a fatal shooting? I mean, no person joins the police force to to fire their weapon. And I know multiple officers who've never fired their weapon over their entire career. So for, for someone like, you know, the officers involved in this shooting, it's got to be really difficult from their side of things, too. What, what happens to the officers? 
It, it is, and I think thanks for that question, Sue. I think policing is one of the most, uh, arguably maybe the most, um, over, oversaw and accountable profession that there is. Um, officers operate under layers of multiple layers of supervision, external over, oversight governance, and and then when something like this happens, when a critical incident happens, and as you said, for most officers, it won't happen during their career. It's a rare event, but when it does happen, they're subject immediately to a criminal investigation. Uh, that's an independent investigation by the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team. They end up uh, facing, uh, you know, internal reviews as well, like uh, internal conduct investigations. Oftentimes, you'll see civil litigation. You'll see fatality inquiries down the road, and increasingly, and I think, you know, one of the frustrations I think is that there's a lot of armchair quarterbacks, and and some of them are elected officials. Frankly, when you look at it, that have this all figured out before the facts are even established. And I think that 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 discourse uh, sort of sows, I think, or undermines at times public confidence in the police. I mean, what's the point in having an independent investigation into the matter if we've already got it figured out 15 minutes after it happened? So that's a bit of a frustration. And I can tell you, we need to be supporting officers. We ask them to go out and do a difficult job. And when they do, uh, we need to make sure that they're supported. And I'm not talking about when somebody goes out and misconducts themselves. I mean, we all know what to do about that. But when good officers go out and do the right thing for the right reasons, but it doesn't turn out well, I think as a community, we've got to still stand behind them. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Chief. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Have a good day, you too. That is Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. When work piles high, it can be hard to find the motivation to face another day of work. But before you call it quits, what can be done to save your career without leaving your job? With tips and insight, we are joined by Darcy Eichenberg, career coach and author of the book Red Cape Rescue, How to Save Your Career Without Leaving Your Job. Good morning to you, Darcy. Good morning, Andy. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. It's it's hard. I mean, you know, when uh, you, you put the pandemic into motion as well, but beyond that, the grind can be a bit much if, if you've got a lot on the go, if your job is challenging. So I'm wondering, what can people do to stay motivated at their jobs, Darcy? Yeah, you know, we've all gone through so much change, and I, I and especially our workplaces have changed. And so I think one of the first things that we really need to do is to make sure that we're recognizing all that we have done and really appreciating that and the lessons that we've learned because we've done a whole lot more than we give ourselves credit for. I think a lot of times we beat ourselves up for everything that's undone, but we forget to really celebrate all the things that have been done, all the ways that we created new processes and systems and ways of just living and working. And so I think the first place is really just to recognize you've done a whole lot more than you give yourself credit for. Darcy, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking through, you've got five amazing tips for us, so I want to touch on all of them, but I, I, I'm kind of drawn to number five to tell you the truth, because I think sometimes we forget why we got to where we're at, right? And maybe it, it's a good reminder to, to revisit why you got to the point and doing the job that you're doing. Oh, it's it's so important to really kind of take that step back, and especially amid all the noise there is out there about, oh, work is hard, and jobs are bad, and times are tough, that there's a reason that you were drawn to the work that you're doing. Um, or if, if the work you're doing is not the a work you're drawn to or the people that you're drawn to or the environment you're drawn to, that's good learning for you. It's, it's, it's good awareness to say, hey, what is it really that where I can contribute to the world? But to recognize that we really do have to have some appreciation and, 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 
get, you know, fall back in love with our jobs again in some ways. We, we are making a contribution every day that we show up and being able to really make that difference, um, can really make a difference for so many people that we don't ever really realize the ripple effect that our work has in the world. And Darcy, I know for, for many people, it's hard to have that separation between work and, and life and work or outside interests. So how can we train ourselves to leave work at the office and, and give ourselves time to recharge and give ourselves that permission? Yeah, you know, this this theory of work-life balance, I think, doesn't really exist because some for some of us, you know, work is such an in- integral part of our life, but I think we have to set the boundaries for ourselves. We can't expect, I, I hear a lot of conversation around, well, companies should do this or companies should do that, but the truth is companies are people and leaders are people and we have to recognize where we're not allowing boundaries for ourselves where we're not every device that we have has an off button um every everything that is getting in our way or burning us out um, is a conversation to be had about a different way of working and let's remember back not that long ago in early 2020 when we all shifted to different ways of working like overnight well if the way you're working is not working for you why not make a different decision and if you need to have conversations about it and set some new guidelines and boundaries then do that but you have more power than you realize you do to be able to help you have the work and the life mix that is right for you in your life at this time great reminders save your career without leaving your job darcy's new book is called red cape rescue you can get more online website is redcaperevolution.com thank you so much for joining us this morning Hey, thanks, Sue. Thanks, Andy. Have a great day. You too. Darcy Eichenberg, career coach and author of Red Cape Rescue. And it is Pink Shirt Day today, recognized worldwide as a day to stand against bullying. Well, do you and your kids have the tools to address online hate and cyberbullying? To help get us digitally literate and talk about what we can do when we're faced with online bullying is Matthew Johnson, Director of Education for Media Smarts. Morning, Matthew. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Cyberbullying, obviously, we know now it's you know been an ever increasing problem over the years, especially through the pandemic. I would imagine with more and more kids spending more and more time online. So, how do we help our kids or youth as a whole who might be the targets of cyberbullying? How do we even recognize exactly what that means? Well, it can be difficult to really define what cyberbullying is exactly, and it's a term that young people don't tend to use themselves. Um, they tend to talk about things like griefing or drama, and it's very easy for just online conflict to, or even misunderstandings to slide into something more serious. So what we really do have to do, first of all, for young people who may be targets of this, we do need to tell them from a very early age that if anything happens to them that upsets them when they're online, that they need to come and talk to us, their parents, or to another adult that they trust. And we also need to reassure them that we're not going to freak out when that happens, that we're not going to take away the device, we're not going to make them stop playing the game where it happened, that we're going to help them find a solution. We can also help them uh, step forward when they witness cyberbullying, uh, because our research at Media Smarts has shown that that makes a huge difference 
um, just by having someone privately contact the target and tell them that uh, what they think what's happening isn't okay and that they care about them. Seems to me, uh, Matthew, that this is kind of a, uh, it takes a village thing as well. You can't just leave it up to the teachers. Uh, you have to be involved as a parent, kind of a all hands on deck, because when it comes to cyberbullying, it, it can happen anywhere, right? It absolutely can. And what research around the world has found is that uh, along with helping young people develop empathy and making sure that they apply that empathy consciously when they're using digital devices, um, we also need to change social norms around bullying. So one of the things that we can do as parents, for instance, is when we're, when we're watching movies or TV shows with our kids or even just talking to them about their lives, watch for the relationships that are represented. And uh, we, we see in a lot of TV shows, a lot of movies, we see kids being mean to each other. Um, and this is often treated for humor. This is often treated as something um, that it gives them status. And we need to pause and we need to talk about that and say, would you really be like it if, uh, if your friends talk to you like that? Or uh, do you think you would really be popular if you acted like that? Important conversations at home and at schools. How do we, kids or adults for that matter, push back against online hate or prejudice or bullying that we might see online? How does, what does that pushback look like? Well, there are a lot of different ways of doing it. We actually have a resource uh, called Impact, which you can find on the Media Smarts website. And it lets you uh, walk through a cyberbullying scenario. So you can either use it to, to role play uh, what you would do if you witnessed cyberbullying, or you can do it if you're actually witnessing it to help you make a decision. It asks you a series of yes or no questions, and it leads you to something that you can do and gives you advice on what to do, how to do it, even what to say. Because there is always something that you can do um, even again even if it is just reaching out to the target privately and telling them that you care about them if you feel safe we do know that pushing back does make a big difference it changes the social norms of the space that you're in and you can do it with humor what we find with a lot of time uh, situations of uh, homophobic or racist um, bullying it's not perceived by people as being hate speech. It's not intended as hate speech, and so kids are often reluctant to be seen as overreacting. And so we do encourage them to respond uh, with humor to just or to just really simply say, I don't think that's okay, and not make a big deal of it. But just pushing back in those little ways, just showing that you don't agree is enough to change the values of those online spaces and make people less likely to say hurtful things without thinking. You know, Pink Shirt Day, a great day to start the conversation and explore this uh, complex issue. Thanks so much for your time, Matthew. Thanks for having me. That is Matthew Johnson, Director of Education for Media Smarts Online, mediasmarts.ca. We started Black History Month on the East Coast, looking at the impact iconic black Canadians had in shaping our country. This week, we are bringing the discussion home to Alberta. Robert Small, Order of Canada recipient, artist, and creator of The Legacy Poster, is back with us once again to discuss the lives of John Ware and Elnora Ruth Collins. Good morning to you, Robert. Hey, Andy, how are we doing? Good, and your cross-country tour is home here in Alberta for us. And it's interesting, growing up in Calgary, I know friends who went to a school by the name of John Ware, 
And it wasn't until a few years later that I started to hear about the man that the school is named after. So that's our focus to kick things off. Tell us about John Ware, Robert. Yeah, well, John Ware was one of the first blacks in Alberta. Even before it was a province, he was there. And he was a well-known cowboy, and it's actually credited with introducing longhorn cattle to the province. And uh, in and the one thing that's special about the two people that I'm profiling is that both Albertans have been on a commemorative, commemorative stamp. And uh, in 2012, John Ware was on a commemorative stamp, uh, in addition to the other person I'm going to be talking about. But like you mentioned, that John, there's John Ware Junior High School in Southwest Calgary. There's the John Ware Building at Calgary Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. And there's also a Polytechnical Undergraduate College that was named after him. And the John Ware 4-H Beef Club in Dutchess. Uh, you'll have to verify that for me, right, since I've never been there before, right? So John Ware really contributed to the formation of, uh, of uh, Alberta and uh, as well in black history and Canadian history. Robert, there's a, a direct connection to the Calgary Stampede as well, isn't there, beyond you know him introducing Longhorn cattle, et cetera, but what's the Stampede connection? Oh, yeah, actually, you're, well, the two of you have been doing your homework, so I'm glad that, uh, that this month has actually gotten people more interested because I didn't know about that, actually, that that, that connection and everything, so I, I'll definitely look into that. Okay, me too. It, it is interesting to me because you look at, you know, you've been bringing this, these fantastic stories to us. And I'm looking at, you know, the background of John Ware, born in 1845, uh, passing away in 1905. Uh, so, you know, you think about like back then, relatively short lifespan, 60 years. But 1905, the year that Alberta was founded, you know, as a province. So he was an Albertan before there was even Alberta. There's, there's a rich history behind this gentleman. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, so that's why it's important for us to learn more about the history of various people from different uh, different nationalities and different cultures and different races, because some of the things that they've done have really contributed to what we enjoy today, especially in Alberta. And John Ware, obviously, we know that name from the schools, et cetera, so a little bit more prominent. But this, I did not know the name Elnora Ruth Collins, who is the second Albertan that you're focusing on, called the First Lady of Jazz. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I, and I only found out about her this year, actually, when I seen the commemorative stamp. And uh, Miss uh, Ruth Collins, she was the first Canadian, first, like you mentioned, she was the Canada's first lady of jazz. She was the first Canadian woman and the first black entertainer in Canada to have a national television show. Uh, it was entitled the C- CBC TV's The Eleanor Show, and that was in 1955, you know, 10 years after the <laughs> Second World War. Right, so often she was often compared to American singer Lena Horne, that which a lot of people know. Mm. And Collins performed on many television, radio, variety shows, as well as in clubs. She, and in addition to that, she, the one thing that her and I share is that we're both members of the Order of Canada. And she, but on top of that, you know, and I'll have to do a lot of a lot of uh, singing practicing to get into this. She's also in the, in the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame. And that commemorative stamp that that features her was released this year. I'm, and you can see it in Canada Post offices, stores around the around the country. I need, uh, you know, some confirmation on this. Did, did we mention her age? Because uh, according to uh, Wikipedia, which is a very reliable source, Robert, in case <laughs> yeah, you, want, exactly. you can use I it if you want. All the time. Uh, it says Elnora El- 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 Ruth Proctor because, uh, you know, that's what she was born. El- Eleanor Collins, which she goes by, um, 102 years old. 
102? Yeah, her birthday's November 21st, wow. uh, 1919. So we need to do some digging here because, again, an historical figure. Born in 1919, I, I need some confirmation of this because that is an incredible continuation of a story of somebody who did so much. Yeah, exactly. Though it's a good thing that this is my last week because both you, both uh, both Sue and Andy are like <laughs> upping up in the game every week on myself, right? So <laughs> gotta keep you on the ball, Robert. Keep you on the ball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell, tell us about the good thing. This is a the good thing. This is Alberta because my street cred would have been uh, knocked, knocked off. <laughs> hey, tell us a little bit about how you were and why you were, uh, you know, honored with the Order of Canada and and your legacy poster project as well. Yeah, well, for 28 years, I've been creating a poster that's been circulating around the country, that I've been selling across the country, entitled Legacy, and it features uh, various people who have contributed, uh, African-Canadians, black people who have contributed to uh, Canadian society. So I've really gotten that because when I was, a, when I was young, growing up in uh, Toronto, I didn't really see myself reflected in the educational material you know, so gradually when I got older, even though I went to university for sociology and criminology, I definitely came back to my first love of uh, combining art as well as education. And uh, I create educational material uh, focusing on the African-Canadian experience. I've been doing that for a long time, so I'm really grateful. And we appreciate, you know, all the work you've done for us here, Robert. And it's got to be interesting because, you know, it's not just compiling, you know, data and numbers and names, but these rich stories. You must feel like you, you know some of these people personally with how deep you've uh, dug in, in the different paths you've taken to, to find their stories. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even though I'm joking around with uh, the questions you've asked me, but I thought I knew the, the history of John Ware prior to coming on the show. But, you know, there's, uh, there's samples that you mentioned, a little fact that both of you dropped, that made me say, you know, I really need to dwell into these people, people deeper with regard to their history and really appreciating what they've done for Canadian society. Truly a rich history, and we need to learn more about it. So we're grateful for you through the months to have brought these wonderful stories of these wonderful Canadians to us. It's really been, uh, you know, fun for, I think, for all of us to learn about people. And, you know, a couple of names maybe right here in the province of Alberta that most folks have not heard before. So we appreciate your time right all through this month. It's been wonderful to chat with you, Robert. Well, thanks. You know, my virtual travel across Canada is complete. You know, now I'll be hitchhiking back to Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) How can people find out more information about the uh, Legacy Poster? Yeah, well, if they can go to uh, www.thelegacyposter.com, they'll be able to see the posters I've been talking about, as well as uh, some art that I create. And uh, that would be be great, any support that's given. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we can pencil you in for next year, Robert. Yeah, exactly. Same bad time, same bad chat. You know, okay. have, have a good one. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you lot, Sue, Andy. Robert Small, Order of Canada recipient, ardor, artist, and creator of the Legacy Poster. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.